Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Students Against Mandates podcast. I am co-host Brandon Paradoski here with Sheldon Monroe, and we have the amazing opportunity of speaking with Dr. Byram Brittle today. Uh, Byram is an associate professor at the University of Guelph. His research focuses in on cancer immunotherapy, as well as host uh, immune responses to viruses. So we chose the perfect person uh, to talk today about COVID in general, vaccines, masks, and everything else that comes with it. So welcome, Byram, and thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, well, thanks, Sheldon and Brandon, for having me. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, really glad to chat. As a faculty member, um, you know, my job is to educate uh, students and uh, facilitate their uh, moving on to, you know, the next stages of their career. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm really glad that uh, you guys have formed this group, Students, students Against the Mandates. And yeah, it's a pleasure for me to be able to talk directly to students who are enrolled in universities. In your case, two different universities. Um, I say it's University of Calgary and University of Manitoba. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Yep. Well, we're so thrilled to have you on. Um, we want to start off first with with our, our basic responses to the virus here. So going right back, I mean, it's going back to 2020, um, but this argument is, is, is should remain relevant, continuing uh, still to today. You know, our response to the virus, that being justification and validity of the lockdown, masking, social distancing, the vaccines, um, were predicated on the concept that, that COVID was a real risk. It was a real imminent threat and, um, you know, so preventative methods aside, let's get into the, the, the initial situation we're dealing with. Was there a real threat from COVID? Um, what evidence do we have to suggest that there was a real threat? And, and how would, did this threat vary in regards to age cohorts? Yeah, so, yeah, that's a, that's a very important question. So when we go back uh, three, three years, so I guess, um, I don't know if, if uh, both of you realize, yes, yesterday, I believe it was, was the official... Uh, third anniversary of our government declaring the three weeks to flatten the curve lockdown, right? You might, might recall that. So that was the initial one. And we were told it was going to be three weeks. The, the goal was de definitely not to, you know, try and eliminate SARS-CoV-2 from Canada within those three weeks. The idea instead was to give our medical infrastructure three weeks to be prepared for the uptake in cases that they were, that, you know, that they would inevitably see, um, which is always going to occur when you have some a new infectious disease spreading through a population. So um, that that was absolutely 100% appropriate. Uh, of course, you want to give your medical system uh, a chance to prepare, and we didn't know um, in those first three weeks exactly what we were dealing with. And so you want to you want to always I, I always advocate the precautionary principle, right? This is a traditionary principle in medicine where um, if you're really not 100 percent confident about risks, then you always want to err on the side of mitigating risk. So I was OK with that. I was practicing precautionary principles. Um, this could have been a very deadly virus, right? It could have had a high infection fatality rate. And so everything we did was appropriate. But shortly it was very quickly, you know, a very short time into the declared pandemic. Certainly, certainly by two months in, most people knew that the data were very clear that the high risk individuals were, uh, in particular, the frail elderly. Those were the ones that were really susceptible. And and by frail elderly, I'm, I'm meaning elderly individuals with comorbidities. Um, and then the and then 
there's this sort of perfect age uh, correlation, right? So uh, the younger the person, the less at risk they were. And what was really remarkable about this, in fact, um, it was it had a very unusual risk distribution when it comes to age because normally there's two demographics at both ends of the spectrum that are high risk. It's the elderly and it's the very young, like, like infants and toddlers. Uh, and, and the reason is actually the same in both cases. In the case, it's because their immune systems aren't functioning optimally. And uh, with older people, we call it immunosenescence. With age, the um, our, the functionality of our immune system declines. And on the other end of the spectrum, right, when we're born, we're immunologically naive and immunologically immature. Uh, in fact, our immune systems don't reach full maturity uh, remarkably until about 16 years of age. So most of that maturation happens between birth and the age of six, but we're, we don't actually achieve full immunological mature, maturity until about age 16. So in very young people and, and, and children, um, they're, they're usually particularly susceptible to infectious disease. So what's interesting about this, so this was very unique in that way. So any other infectious disease, those would be the two demographics that you expect. So we got the expected high-risk demographic with the elderly. But with the children, there's this interesting phenomenon. What we discovered is the receptor, uh, one, a, a dominant receptor that this virus uses to latch on to our cells and infect our cells is uh, in the airways of children uh, expressed at lower concentrations than it is in adults. So it makes the, uh, it renders it more difficult for SARS coronavirus 2 to infect cells in their airways. So, um, but again, we didn't know the mechanism at the time, but it was obvious that children were at very low risk from this disease. But that is the mechanism, interestingly enough. Uh, and, then, and then the other factor is, of course, the comorbidities. So even those, uh, you know, the people who have unfortunately required um, admissions to ICU, especially those who've had to be put on ventilators, and especially among those who have died from an infection with SARS-CoV-2, uh, the vast majority have had comorbidities. Um, and in fact, the statistics tell us that on average, they have at least two comorbidities and often three or more comorbidities, right? And, and just for your audience, so a comorbidity is just the medical term for meaning another illness, um, often uh, some kind of chronic illness, right? So if somebody has diabetes and then they get infected with SARS-CoV-2, by definition, because that person has diabetes, that would be a person with a comorbidity, right? With another disease condition. So just to follow that up, I know people um, have varying opinions on what they perceive COVID, the risk to be to them. Um, and so a lot of time has elapsed, like you said, now three years. So we have good data to tell us concretely the actual risk. And one of the first things that comes to mind is John, I think, Ionitis from Stanford and that recent uh, paper that went through case uh, fatality rates, I believe, um, before the vaccines, uh, if, if you've read that paper, could you maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and sort of, um, the methodology and, and why this is an important paper to know about? Yeah. Yeah. So that gets back to the reason why I felt it was completely appropriate to have that in, initial lockdown until we could figure out what was going on. Um, because I don't know if you recall, but the public messaging at the time from people like um, Anthony Fauci in the United States and other prominent public health figures, they they were declaring this fear that the infection fatality rate may be as high as um, uh, one or or higher, meaning that. 
for every 100 people that would get infected with SARS-CoV-2, at least one would die. That is a very high infection fatality rate. And I would tell you, if, if, uh, if this virus did have an infection fatality rate of one or higher, um, so, actually, some were predicting that it might be as high as 10. Keep that in mind. So for every 10 people infected, one would die, right? Um, that was the message that came out, which we, we now know was, you know, I would argue that was part of the fear mongering that we had. There was not that there were no data to, to back that up. Those were really individuals, personal opinions, but they did not make that clear. And because these were high level health officials, people assume they must definitively know what they're talking about. So if you have an infection fatality rate around one to 10, uh, that is very dangerous. That is very, especially on a global level with, with a pathogen that can spread across uh, countries' borders. And uh, we would have had a major, major problem on our hands. But you raise a good point, Brandon. Uh, Ioannidis has published a couple of papers which have really been very informative where he's done these in-depth analyses looking at what what was the true you know, trying trying to estimate as much as possible what the true rate of infection was, and then comparing that to the uh, to the number of fatalities, right, that have occurred due to the infection. Now, so um, he he published uh, quite some time ago. His first paper suggested the the infection fatality rate uh, could be as low as 0.15, and and what was interesting in that first paper is that was for all age demographics, right? So that included the the elderly um, and also included those with comorbidities right so the high risk demographics that we were just talking about 0.15 and so why that is important is because people recognize that we had these really well defined very high risk demographics and so if you remove those from the calculation almost certainly that infection fatality rate would drop to about you know at least 0.1 and his most recent paper which you mentioned brandon clearly does suggest that and it suggests that for low risk individuals especially those who are younger the infection fatality rate especially children right the infection fatality rate is well under 0.1 and the reason why 0.1 is important is um there's lots of lots and lots of historical literature that tells us that a a bad flu season right severe flu season would have an infection fatality rate of about 0.1. So what it does is it puts it into a perspective, right? Because we ha we experience uh, the flu on an outbreaks of the flu on an annual basis, right? Um, a, a lot of us will call it uh, the cold and flu season. Uh, and then a lot of individuals like myself, immunologists will also refer to it as low vitamin D season, right? They both correlate. So there's some important um, implications for functioning the immune system and why people might be more susceptible during a, a certain part of the year. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, we live through annual outbreaks of the flu, right? Um, and never, never have we imposed these kind of lockdowns um, in our lifetimes. And so that's why it's an, important to place this into perspective. Uh, now, I would argue, so again, for the high-risk demographics, I, you know, the, the data are very clear. If if you were elderly, and, and especially if you had comorbidities, yeah, you were at risk, so you had to be particularly careful. But especially young people, people your age, you know, college and university students and younger, uh, this is never, this has never been a high-risk pathogen. Um, and in fact, influenza is potentially, uh, a severe outbreak of influenza would potentially present a, a much greater risk to people in your demographic, um, especially young children. So, the and I would even argue that this, these most recent calculations still remain an overestimate of the infection fatality rate, okay? Uh, and the reason being, 
is just so what your audience um, understands really what they're so again what this infection fatality rate, what it's calculating is it's looking at so as it as it implies infection right so you determine how many people in a population have been infected with the virus of interest which in this case is SARS coronavirus 2 and then you ask the second the second piece of data that you need is out of that population how many of them died due to that infection that, that this is these are very important things to remain so so the two definitions are so 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 sorry i actually am going to um correct what i just said in terms of the deaths not deaths uh necessarily well yeah due to the infection so due specifically uh to, to to the disease caused by the infection right so what we're talking about sars coronavirus 2 is the virus of interest here the disease it causes in some people is covid 19. Right? a lot of people forget that um the d in covid 19 is disease, right? The coronavirus disease that was first identified in 2019. So people actually have to have signs, symptoms. They have, the, the, the only way that you can properly diagnose a disease is for a professional clinician, so a physician, to actually uh, render the diagnosis. They have to actually identify that there is a disease present. Um, simply have, and, and then what, what they use to, what they're supposed to do to help aid that is literally use aids to diagnosis and these are tests that can be done things like pcr tests antigen tests and so on those are only be aids to, to the diagnosis to help the physician make the diagnosis so there has to be a disease right and then and then if the person dies from that disease that counts as a fatality due to that infectious agent right and now this is important because there's two issues here we have i i would argue that we have overestimated to a substantial but unknown degree, the number of deaths due to COVID-19, and we have still uh, underestimated to an unknown degree, the number of infections that occurred. Now, and this is why, because in many people, especially young people uh, who have robust innate uh, responses and immune responses, they many of them never got sick. So there's many people, and there's, there's, there's many middle-aged people as well. And, and even in the elderly, there have been examples of elderly who, who were infected but never got overtly sick, right? And so the issue with that is when people can get infected but not get sick, right? Um, those are cases that are very difficult to identify. The only reason why these cases started to be identified is people started doing widespread testing, including testing of asymptomatic people, right? Now, this is what led to the body of literature that argued in favor of this concept of asymptomatic transmission, which if you want, we can talk about that later, but that's, that's a fallacy. But nevertheless, it did show that people could be infected and not get the disease, right? And so then the question is, in the absence of testing everybody and gathering all of that data into a reliable database, you know, across the globe, we will have inevitably missed lots of people who were infected, but they never knew they were infected. Nobody will ever know that they were infected because we weren't testing those people. So that is why, that's the reason why we have underestimated the infection, right? That the denominator in this equation. Um, and then when you go to the numerator, which is the fatality, the fatalities, and so many cases of COVID-19, uh, like prob probably a majority of cases of COVID-19 have not been diagnosed by a physician. Remarkably, they've been diagnosed by what we call a, a, a thermocycler, right? Which is this machine, a little box that sits on a lab bench that uh, that runs the PCR test. And if it simply comes back with a positive test result, 
usually with a, a largely randomly assigned cutoff to determine uh, the difference between a positive and negative, then those people were declared to have this disease, right? So again, I, I already told you what the proper way is for a physician to diagnose a disease. Why physicians over the past three years gave up their high-level training and basically said to the whole world, you know what, we're not needed to make diagnoses. Diagnoses can be made by thermocyclers and other machines sitting in the lab. They can be made by lab technicians, right? My goodness. So why are, why are they taking this high-level training to learn these diagnostic skills, right? But so so that, that is what my point. And so we do know that for sure, in, in some cases, some of these people, they, they would have been false positives. Or we also know that they would have been um, true positives, but the people weren't actually sick with COVID-19. Maybe they had recovered and cleared it. There's remnants of the virus, right, that stay in the body for quite some time afterwards. In fact, cells of the immune system want to hang on to the, these uh, viral particles for, for up to months so that they can keep uh, presenting pieces of the virus to the immune system, right, to protect it from the virus. So so we know that. So it could have been somebody who, who uh, did get genuinely infected may or may not have had the disease, but the time they're being tested, you know, for example, when they're in the hospital, because if you're going to die from COVID, it's going to be in the hospital, remember? And it was routine for anybody who got into the hospital to be tested. So you can have people who did have, who did were infected, maybe they even had mild COVID, who knows, but they recovered. And then they came into the hospital with something else, but they tested positive. And they automatically would be designated as a case of COVID-19. And this is the thing, uh, Sheldon Brand, this is the very important thing. You can verify this with public health data all over the place. I recommend, remarkably, one of the places uh, that, that's been particularly, tr well, uh, transparent to a certain degree with this is Ontario. So if you go to the Ontario's public health uh, website, they will show you, um, they have admitted that of hospitalizations, ICU admissions and deaths, approximately half of those have been uh, that were attributed to COVID-19 were not due to COVID-19. Now, what they officially say is they were, quotes with COVID-19, but that needs to be corrected. It was not confirmed to be with COVID-19. What they actually mean is with a positive PCR test result, right? So they try and make the argument, oh, well, at least COVID-19 was a comorbidity that contributed to the primary cause of death, right? No, we don't know that. They had a positive PCR test result. We actually, unfortunately, because they did not routinely have physicians make proper diagnoses, they may or may not have had COVID-19. We need to keep that in mind, right? So if you think about that, that half, up to half, and on some days, you know, they, they did this on a daily basis in Ontario for a while. Um, sometimes it was more than half, right, that had, uh, that had died not due to COVID or yeah, not due to COVID nineteen, but with a positive PCR test result. So knowing that, it, there's clear evidence. That's why I'm saying it's clear evidence that we have overestimated deaths due to COVID nineteen. And so we take those two things into account, Brandon. That's why you need to, when you're reading the Ioannidis paper, you have to have that background information in mind. That he, he's limited in terms of the data that are available, and there's lots of data missing on the true number of infections. And, the, and we, there's lots of data missing on how many of the deaths were actually due to COVID-19 and not due to a misdiagnosis of COVID-19 simply because they had a positive PCR test result. So in other words, Ioannidis has the most accurate estimate to date, and that estimate is an overestimate, but I can't tell you to what degree. So Byram, uh, just to back up a little bit, um, just to get things clear, so 0.1%, you said that's on par with um, moderate to even bad flu seasons. I think if you put that in the context of everyone's minds, I don't think, 
I think few people would want to destroy the world over that. To be honest, we turned the world upside down. Um, the economy's wrecked for I don't know how long. Um, people couldn't see their loved ones. Um, people were forced into doing a whole host of things they didn't want to do. So I think if we just put that in context, um, I think few people would implement the measures we implemented uh, knowing that comparison with the flu. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I just uh, interrupt you for one second there, Brent? You bring up a great point. Uh, this is a very important point that your listeners need to be uh, aware of. I agree with you. So I agree, and I dis on one hand, I disagree on another. I personally agree that, you know, so, okay, it's unquestionable. We have never done this for the flu before, right? Yes, they did it back in 1918 or uh, 1917, right, with the, with the Spanish flu. Uh, and again, there's questions actually about that because now we know um, subsequently that many of those deaths were actually due to a bacterial pneumonia, right? Um, and, and so they, they, we actually don't know what the real data are from that because we didn't, that wasn't parsed out properly, how much was due to the influenza and how much was due to a bacterial pneumonia that was killing people as well. But the point is that was the last time that we did similar measures, masking and, and uh, uh, isolation policies and so on. It was 1918. So you're right. Ever since then, we have never implemented that for the flu. Uh, and I would argue going forward that we should not. But this is the thing, Brandon and Sheldon. I, I saw this coming from a mile away. And I actually started expressing my concerns about this more than one year ago in, in interviews and when I was speaking in person at various events. Because we now know that this is not much different from the flu, you, you, you see, you and I are looking at that in, in what I would say is we're putting in a proper context. We're saying the flu was something that we never got super scared about every year. And so we didn't implement these these crazy lockdowns and, and we've never mandated the flu vaccines. Right. Um, and because, you know, the, the and we view it as the, you know, SARS-CoV-2 was really no more dangerous than the flu for the vast majority of people, right? Um, now, this is the issue though, is I saw what was happening. People have, remember, people have been programmed. They're, really what has happened in the last three years, many of the decisions that have been driven were driven by fear, right? And many many people have been programmed with this fear now. And they they associate SARS-CoV-2 with, you know, it's 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 been dubbed a very dangerous virus, a virus that required lockdowns, a virus required masking, a virus required vaccine mandates, right? And so what's happening is, and I saw my colleagues, um, especially in virology, uh, I, I predicted they were going to start uh, taking advantage of this fear. And I really do believe it is taking advantage of people's fear. And what they're doing is they're kind of sending the message, you know, oops, we never realized historically how dangerous the flu was, right? So instead of you and I saying, saying, oh, look, the SARS-CoV-2 is no more dangerous than the flu. They're flipping that on its head and starting to say, oh, you know, we never really fully appreciated that the flu was as dangerous as SARS-CoV-2, right? And so you need to be aware of that, Brandon and Sheldon. You need to keep your eyes open because I've already seen some of my virology colleagues starting to put that messaging out there. I saw this starting by prominent virologists in Canada um, about six months ago, putting out public messages that, you know what? We might need to start thinking about things like masking and, and you know, pushing the flu vaccines harder and stuff like that uh, during flu seasons. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it looks like China is going to implement 
um, uh, masking uh, policies and possibly vaccine pol uh, mandates, sorry, masking mandates and possibly vaccine mandates for the annual flu. So I, I personally agree with you, Brandon, that we should view it the way you and I are looking at it, put it in that kind of context and back off the fear from SARS-CoV-2. But we need to be very diligent because instead people are trying to ramp up, use the same information to ramp up the fear for the flu. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's so important just to jump in really quickly there to dispel with this pervasive notion of, of this intensely, you know, fearful situation where we have, with a real issue we're trying to um, we're dealing with as COVID is, is made out to be. Um, but just as a quick thing to say, and I think particularly young people um, can, could appreciate this, is as a young people and as everyone in society, um, we, we endure risks daily, right? So it has to be yeah. put in a relative context of, you know, I think if we were listening to the TV and they're continually ticking us how many people died in, in say, car crashes, we would be extremely fearful of car crashes. So as we go forward, and if they do try to to go forward with pushing, uh, you know, mandates as to regards to the annual flu, we have to ensure that we always are keeping this in as to the relative risk as everything else we do in society. So, just an important uh, reminder that I, I like to um, always keep in my mind. But a hundred percent, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Sheldon. You're one hundred percent correct. Yeah. More people, more more young people, including especially in your age demographic, um, die on an annual basis from car accidents than than have died from. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 by a lot. And, wow. and so you're absolutely right. If we if we really are arguing that we, we really care about you guys, right, and and, and your fellow students and uh, younger people, children, um, then we would ban the use of cars. And, and we've shown like like this is the crazy thing Like people. People would you know, the funny thing is if when you say that people's initial response, which I like, I, I want them. I, I say to them that capture that initial guttural response that you have when you hear that, right? Which is, I'm not gonna give up my car. How would I get to my cottage? How would I go you know, on my vacations? How would I get to the grocery stores quickly and as easily as I do, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Yes, but look, if you care, if you, if you claim to care enough about people's health, you'll move mountains. That's what we saw over the last three years. You will, you will be able to convince the federal government to pay half a billion dollars, remember that number, half a billion dollars a day to implement policies to save lives. Now think about it, <laughs> and it could be the exact same policies. You don't need to do anything different. Guess what? If you lock everybody in their homes, guess what? They're not using their vehicles. And all of you young people aren't gonna die in car accidents. So I, I, I like to bring that up, Sean. You're absolutely right. We have to keep putting this into perspective. Uh, it's the same thing with the flu. That's the whole reason why we haven't locked people down because of the flu. The flu is genuinely more dangerous to children in particular. Children die every year from the annual flu. There's no question. And um, But we as a, as a society have said we're, there's a quality of life. You, like you, there, you, can't, you can never bring risk for any demographic in life to zero. You can never do that, right? So it's always a risk-benefit analysis. And our society has determined that the benefit to our lives, lifestyles, mental health, right, which includes the mental health of children and everything, uh, outweighs the relatively few deaths that occur to these potentially dangerous, but not really dangerous viruses that we live with, that we've lived with on an annual basis, right? Um, people have always forgotten about that. They don't seem to have cared about the fact that children die every year from the flu, but we've never done this because those same adults that claim now, right, oh, we got to do this for the children, protect the children, who've always been at low risk, 
from SARS-CoV-2. No, you, that was never your declaration every year when children are dying from the flu. When that's been happening year after year after year, um, you you want to be able to drive your car. You want to be able to go on vacation. You know, you want to be able to fly to Hawaii, et cetera. So no, we have to keep that in mind, Sheldon. It's always a cost-benefit analysis. And it's not just a health cost-benefit analysis. It's also a an overall quality of life uh, benefit analysis we have to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so well put there, doctor. Yeah, it's... Um... Exactly. Thorough cost-benefit analysis, and you know, in addition to the analogy we're using there, yes, means that in long term as well, we have to be thinking of things. And if we, you know, lock people down for not using their cars to prevent deaths um, from car accidents, you know, we'd also have to think about the impact that having, a, you know, staying people being forced to stay in their homes would have on people as well. So there's that, there's that risk as well, and and it could take us into the lockdowns, so a whole other conversation there. But just to focus on on the vaccines, I think this is an important area we're getting to here because it's this fear we're moving towards uh, the solution um, or proposed solution from from the uh, the pervasive narrative, which is which is vaccines. So. You know, I want to ask, what, what concerns do you have with the vaccine trials? And can you explain the safety of the vaccines as a result of the trial? What do they indicate, the, the trials indicate? And can you also touch on I have something I found so important, I've heard you say a few times, relative risk reduction in comparison to absolute risk reduction. I, I think it's beneficial people have, have this kind of perspective. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for raising that that uh, last one. People who are willing to have a conversation, an open conversation about what the real risks are. Uh, look like um need to hear this you know they need to understand what you just brought up this this concept of absolute versus relative risk reduction so so just to highlight um relative risk reduction is so it's it's like if you have a population of people that that have something so let's so let's use something that people would be you know very familiar with let's say it's diabetes right and you you want to you want to be able to tell people so you know because so if, if a person gets a diagnosis of diabetes right they want to know what's their risk for example of dying dying with diabetes right so if you have diabetes then there's a there's a a number that you can come up with right by looking at the number of people with diabetes and how many people die from that disease that we call diabetes right not due to other things it's due to the diabetes so if you get diagnosis of diabetes right from the historical data we can tell you that you have an X percent chance of dying from the diabetes, right? With the diagnosis you've just received. That would be a relative risk analysis, right? Because it's looking at everybody that has diabetes. Now, absolute risk analysis is saying to somebody who has not been diagnosed with diabetes, right? What are your chances of dying from from diabetes, right? From uh, you. So what are your chances? So, so you see there's an additional step in there that's missing from the relative or, or the uh, yeah the relative analysis, because now you're removed. You have first have to get diabetes, right? So there's this risk for those who have diabetes, but you first have to get diabetes to be in that risk group, right? And your risk of getting diabetes is relatively low, so your risk definitely goes up substantially if you have got to, obviously your risk of dying from diabetes has gone up substantially if you now have a diagnosis of diabetes. That's the difference between relative risk assessment and absolute risk assessment. And this is the important thing because it's so different. Like a physician would never, ever, ever, like, so for, for example, I, I don't have diabetes. My physician, I would never go in for an annual checkup and my physician would never say to me, okay, Byram, your risk of, get, of dying from diabetes is, and quote the same number for somebody who has been diagnosed with diabetes. They're never, ever, ever going to do that because that is the relative risk. They're going to say, 
I want you to, you know, be, you know, how's your diet? I just want to recommend you stay on a good diet, stay away from high sugars, refined sugars, because the risk of, you know, diabetes is, and it's going to be a much smaller percentage. That's the absolute risk, right? Um, that's what they're going to relay to me. Because those numbers are so different, physicians have always, always, always been advised never, never give anybody the absolute risk without telling them, sorry, the relative risk without alongside it putting the absolute risk. And in fact, if you're only going to give them one statistic, you tell them the absolute risk. Now, you can go, people can look this up right now, This right as we're speaking, they could go and look on the U.S. Centers for Disease Control website and do a search for uh, absolute versus um, relative risk. You'll be able to find a recommend this recommendation from the United States Centers for Disease Control. They clearly state one should never state relative risk without putting in the context of absolute risk. And you know why? Because they they say right there on their website, and this is why it's always been recommended, you never just express anything as relative risk, is it leads to biased decision-making. It messes up informed consent. Now, this is very important because now let's put it in the context of SARS-CoV-2. Remember we were all told that the reason, so we, we now know that we were being told vast overestimates about the harm of the virus, right? The infection fatality rate. It wasn't as dangerous as it was, as we were told early on. And that was married to this idea from the early clinical trial data that um, the the vaccines, like for example, the Pfizer Moderna vaccine had were um, 95% efficacious, okay? And that is remarkable because everybody in their mind, see, this is this is the problem. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it right up front with the numbers, and then we can parse it out. 95% efficacious. What they didn't tell people is that was the relative risk reduction. And and do you know what the absolute risk reduction was? It was 0.8%, right? What they did not reveal to people is in the early stages of those clinical studies. Remember, the current variants of, of SARS-CoV-2 are quite infectious. It's got quite infectious. That also led to, sort of, to fear-mongering. In fact, infectiousness does not equal danger. The common cold is highly infectious, highly contagious, right? But it's not particularly dangerous. Um, but we have to keep that in mind because not everybody has in mind, well, this is highly infectious. No, at, at the beginning, it wasn't nearly as infectious. And what people don't realize is when it came to the Wuhan variant that was circulating in that initial clinical trial, right? Less than 1% of people got COVID during the time they were acquire, collecting that COVID data. So that 95% effectiveness was calculated within the population, right, that got COVID. And they looked at the difference between those that got the vax and those that didn't. So the absolute risk reduction was 0.84%. But all that they did, see, they did exactly what we weren't supposed to, exactly what we have been warned not to do because it leads to misinformed consent. Now, th think about that for a moment. If you, you're, you're, you know, say you're completely naive, now all of a sudden, you know, this, and, you, and, you, and, and we've overestimated the, the, the danger of this virus, and hey, you want to overestimate initially to be on the safe side, but we continue to overestimate when we knew we could stop dropping down on, on uh, promoting just how dangerous it was. But nevertheless, you, you know, there's a virus that can be dangerous, and now you're told there's a vaccine. Now, uh, and this is a vaccine that is, that is nowhere close 
to having completed. I mean, it's just in the very early stages of the phase three clinical trial. It's it's a, a new uh, you know technology to be to be uh, that's never been authorized by interim order ever before in Canada, right? Uh, and certainly not received full authorization ever before. Uh, yeah, there's been experiments done with with these vaccines. There was one one uh, study done with Ebola with an mRNA vaccine, uh, et cetera. So that doesn't count. And even there, I, I don't care how many times. I don't care if we've used umpteen, if we had approved umpteen different mRNA vaccines. In science, you can't just say, well, because it's an mRNA vaccine, therefore we know it's safe and effective based on everything else. That's like saying, oh, chemo. I've come up with a new chemotherapeutic drug, and because I'm calling it a chemotherapeutic, I mean, we've been using chemotherapeutic drugs for decades. I don't need to test it on people. I don't need to do adequate safety testing. I mean, come on, chemotherapeutics are poisons, right? You're trying to poison the cancer before you poison the, the rest of the patient. Um, you have to still do the testing. So we knew this, right? And people had legitimate questions, right? About how thoroughly tested has this been? I'd feel more comfortable, right? If I could see more data. Now, but then they tell you, right? They tell you, experts come out and tell you, this is 95% efficacious people. Now you now you go and make your informed decision about whether you want to take this. I've informed you that it's 95% uh, effective. Now you have another physician who follows the proper policy and the proper instruction. And they say, okay, I want you to know as my patient that the absolute risk reduction you know, the um, uh, benefit of this vaccine is 0.84%. Now, those two people are going to walk away from their physician and they're going to have very different numbers in their mind. And that, you know, like, come on, we, we all can agree 0.84% versus 95%. One sounds unbelievable. The other one does not sound particularly impressive, does it? And this is the thing is when people heard that 95% um, did, so you could see public health officials could argue this. Did they explicitly state that that was not relative risk reduction, or did they explicitly state that it was that they were trying to pretend it was absolute risk reduction? No, but the onus is on them. You do not have fully informed consent when you are an expert and you're relaying information to a non-expert. You need to relay it in a way that they completely understand it, or that does not meet the the rules of informed consent. Um, so this is the thing. The, the public messaging should have been people, the clinical trials have shown us that if you get COVID or, um, or, or no, sorry, if you were, if you are, if, if you, we know you're going to get COVID, um, you're going to have a 95% less chance of getting it if you're, if you're vaccinated, but your chances of getting COVID right now are very, very, very low. Right. Um, so, so fine, put up the 95%, but put in the context, if you're sit, sitting there right now and you're a healthy person, You've got, they're only going to reduce your risk by 0.84% because your chances of getting infected are, are, are very, very low. That is that is an egregious error right from the get-go, an egregious error that completely broke the whole concept of informed consent. I think another good point, Byram, um, to put into context is sort of the monkey business going in the background too. Um, I, I know it came out sort of in the British Medical Journal um, through a whistleblower who was working at some of these Pfizer clinical trial sites and said that um, many participants were unblinded. So the physicians knew whether they took the placebo or the vaccine. So there's some changes in how they were testing them. Hundreds of PCR tests were excluded um, that were symptomatic COVID for whatever reason. Um, they were long to follow up with adverse events. <clears throat> and even in the case with, um, sorry, my voice is going off here. <clears throat> Maddie DeGary, 
she was reported as having a stomach issue, I believe, when she's now in a wheelchair after entering Pfizer's clinical trials. So I think that's important to put in the back of the context here, as well as Pfizer and the FDA didn't want to release all the safety data for 75 years. There's an ongoing lawsuit for these aforementioned points against Pfizer um, through Brooke Jackson, a person who is working um, at these Pfizer clinical trials and said there was all this monkey business going on. And then again, going to your point with 95% effectiveness, I think it's important uh, to know how those numbers were calculated in the sense it was just based on PCR tests. So I think a lot of people, even if you say relative, if they're pro-vaccine in their mind, they'll say, well, it's 95. That's a high number to me. Good to go. But if you, if you actually think about how these numbers were generated, it was just based on positive PCR tests. And it was something like, what, eight people in the vaccinated group, 100 people in the placebo group out of 20,000 in each arm tested positive. They saw this benefit, ended the trial after two months, gave the placebo group the vaccine so you can't follow up any safety events and then deployed it on millions. I think if you told that to the context of people concretely, they would think you're insane to um, try and inject kids or try and inject everyone at this point. But may maybe talk about, because um, you could say it more clearly than me, uh, how, how the 95 numbers actually generated, that 95%, how long the study lasted for, um, and so what we know about adverse events in this context. Uh, yeah, so, so you've nailed it. So I, you're extremely well-informed, Brand. Uh, <laughs> wow. If everybody who was making a decision about the vaccine ha had this understanding. So what, what you just relayed there, what you just packaged there in, in this question is exactly what, that, that is what a physician should have relayed to their patients when providing this, uh, to fulfill this idea of informed consent. Why this stuff was not revealed, I, I have no idea. Uh, but, to, but to get back, back to your uh, uh, question, I've done a report on it, but uh, and actually offhand, I forget I forget the the numbers. But you've you've got the gist of it, right? The ninety five percent was uh, was just that they, they they had the 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 group that got the the shots, and they had the group that got the placebo, and then they looked at within each group how many actually got diagnosed with COVID nineteen. But not and you're right. Else, right. It was, was a very it was a very yeah. small number. It was a it was a very small number overall. And then what they did is to calculate that 95 percent. Right. Is they took the um, is they took the number that got it in the vaccine group and then divided that by the number that got it in the uh, placebo group and multiplied it by 100. Right. And, and that, that's where they got the 95 percent relative effectiveness. But the proper analysis, like I said, is you actually take the total number of people who got COVID-19 from the entire group, which like you said, was in the ballpark, more than 24,000 people, right? And when you take those tiny number of cases and account for the fact that that was among 24,000 people, not, you know, the, whatever it was, you know, 50 cases or whatever uh, total of COVID that they had identified, then the absolute risk becomes the 0.84% right? Uh, uh, way, 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 way different. So these vaccines do not uh, protect you, give you 95% protection, right? So in other words, people thought if they got this vaccine, they're almost bulletproof. No, not at all. You, you're, and we now know that that's false as well, because that's the other misleading thing, right? Now we know, we know that Pfizer never even had evidence that this was going to protect from transmission uh, at all. 
So that's the other thing, right? The now, now they're arguing that that effectiveness applies to mitigation of severity of disease, blunting the severity of the disease, not even stop. And in fact, we have data now suggesting negative efficacy. So those who have been taking all these additional booster doses actually are getting disproportionately diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, so in fact, it goes the reverse. So everything, so the data is completely, are completely misleading. But I got another couple of things to highlight, Brandon. Absolutely. I, I want to highlight one other thing you said. You mentioned that the the placebo group they were unblinded, yeah. And 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 people have to realize that they were unblinded about four months into the study, and not everybody was enrolled in the study on on day one, right? Not everybody got the vaccine on day one. They were enrolled over time. Some people on day one, some people on day two, etc. So what that means is the median time that we have for the survival data, for, or, or sorry, safety data from the properly run clinical, clinical trial. And I argue that's the only place where we have reliable data now. Why? Because in a clinical trial, you do what we call active monitoring. You don't just give the, the jab and send people away and maybe you hear from them if there's some kind of problem. No, every single person you jab, you have them come back and you take, you test them. You actually actively look for problems, right? Um, to try and rule them out, either rule them in or rule them out. So active monitoring, not this passive monitoring, like with our uh, uh, the systems we're using in Canada and the United States, like the VAERS system, which got, leads to massive underestimation of, of harms. Active monitoring. So the median time we have for that active monitoring is two months, right? People should have been told that the, the amount of time that where we actually have active, so accurate, That'd be the other thing that I would say, if I'm a public health official representing the public, being paid from their tax dollars, I'm not representing the company. I'm going to get up there and say, just so that you know, right, the company, we're, we're, the company, we're considering whether or not we should provide this with authorization by interim order based on a median of two months of proper safety data, right? That is providing people with the information they need to make true informed consent. Now, this is the remarkable thing. So you're right, Brandon. There are uh, there's the, the the whistleblower who came out, and of course, what's happened is anytime a whistleblower comes out with this stuff, they get publicly attacked. I got publicly attacked. I I, I have yet to be able to get anybody who who will who's happy to attack me behind my back. Um, and people say, well, we're not doing it behind your back. We're doing it in public. Yeah. Well, without me being allowed to be there, uh, that's behind my back. Nobody will actually engage me in a conversation because, and I, I'll guarantee you 100% all these fact checkers, everybody else who say, we don't know what we're talking about. Um, I, I'm sorry. I, like, usually I don't sort of you know, try and brag about things or anything, but I, I'm sorry. I, I, I will destroy them. I will destroy them in a conversation because I am so confident about the science. I have such a massive amount of science and they've got this garbage that we're talking about now. But this is the thing. That's what they do. <laughs> so they write off the whistleblower, right? Well, they were just, you know, they weren't happy with their job or whatever. And, you know, it's a personal thing. So I, I can't sit here and prove or disprove who's saying the right thing. I trust the whistleblower 100 percent but I can't definitively prove anything that these fact checkers are doing. So what I do as a scientist is I rely on the objective hard data. And this is the thing. So so, so you mentioned uh, Maddie DeGray. In fact, it's my understanding that she was actually excluded from the harm analysis because she got so injured after the first dose. What they declared is she did not, did not, get, the second she did not get the second dose because she was harmed too much. And there's evidence of other people not getting the second dose because of harm. 
And so they were excluded from the analysis on the basis that they were not vaccinated, right? Remember, the, the definition of vaccinated or fully vaccinated was they had to be, uh, was it 14, uh, two day, seven days out from the second dose. So she was actually excluded from the analysis altogether and then not disclosed. It's remarkable. Yeah, and we should have been told that, uh, obviously. Now, but this is the thing. So this is very important. Your listeners need to, 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 to listen to this because this is, this is not Dr. Bridal speaking. The, the, all I'm doing is, this is not my data. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm just the messenger and don't shoot the messenger. I'll tell your listeners where to go. Go to the New England Journal of Medicine. Do a search, you know, do a Google search, New England Journal of Medicine, Pfizer's six month clinical trial update. So after six months into the trial, they, they, they gave us a report. Now what's very interesting, so the other thing I would say is when people do that search, they're going to find the website for the New England Journal of Medicine that has this paper published. And they're going to see very prominently the paper. But what they actually have to do, so this is the thing, most physicians, when they actually read papers, they're so busy, um, and many scientists for that matter, when they get these papers, what do they do? They just read the abstract. Maybe they'll breeze through the conclusions just to get what's the, to understand what's the take home message from the paper. If you're an expert, you actually largely ignore what the author's conclusions are. And you start you actually look at the materials and methods. So if you don't understand the materials and methods, then you're not you don't actually have sufficient expertise to be using any information from that paper to promote anything. All right. That's the first argument I would say. If you don't understand materials and methods, you don't have the expertise because then all you're doing is you're just relying on conclusions that the authors have drawn and the authors can be wrong. I mean, it's not like there's some special scientist versus other experts. They can miss. I published papers um, just because I've drawn a conclusion. My paper doesn't mean that I'm 100 percent correct all the time. It also doesn't mean that there's alternative interpretations um, and people can criticize the quality of that conclusion based on the quality of my methods. If you use flawed methods, then your conclusions are going to be your data is going to be flawed and you're therefore your conclusions are flawed. So you have to look at the materials and methods first. This is what I recommend. And, and as students, I recommend anytime you look at a scientific paper, don't just read the abstract and the conclusion section, those final few lines, and then and then go and parrot that to everybody. Make sure you're comfortable that the right methods were used, that the data are robust, that you're confident based on materials and methods, that you can trust the data set. Then the way if you ever look at the way a scientific paper is set up, they will always, always, always present the results before the discussion. And this is interesting. A lot of people don't realize when you're writing a results section as a scientist, it is standard practice that you make sure I tell my students all the time. My students make this mistake when they're first writing, you know, their first scientific papers. They love to overlay with their, you know, they report, report the results and they love to overlay that with their interpretation of the results, what they think it means. No. A results section actually is supposed to be stripped of all subjective assessments of the data. You, where that, where those assessment, where your interpretation of your own data comes is the discussion where you're placing it into the context of the broader literature. So a real expert, if I really want, if somebody asks me, what is your opinion on a paper? I will actually take the paper. I will make sure I completely ignore the abstract. I will I will skim through the introduction because that tells me that gives me the scientific concepts that I have to understand to understand the, the research that they did. And then I'll look at the materials and methods to make sure, OK, uh, th these are robust materials and methods. So therefore, I'm going to be able to trust the data. And then I look at the results section. That's the data. And then I draw my own conclusions from what I've seen as, as an expert. Then I read the discussion section. 
And then maybe something, you know, the authors have come up with something from the data that I didn't see, and oh, that's great. So it enriches my interpretation. Or I see something and like this contradicts my what I saw, and I can explain why that contradiction's there because I've gone through this method, right? Uh, that's the proper way to do it. So when people get this New England Journal of Medicine paper, don't just look at what their conclusions were. That that's hearsay evidence. You're just saying you're parroting what somebody else's interpretation was of the objective data. No, look at the objective data. Now this is the thing. The objective data for this paper this is very important, is very difficult to find. So like I said, most people will, will download the paper, just read the abstract, take that final line or two and parrot it. No, you actually have to go to the bottom of the page. You'll find at the very bottom one link to an appendix that's chock full of the uh, original data. Now, I want to tell you, Brandon and Sheldon, this is very important. This is very important because this data was available a long time ago. And I want you to tell me if, if 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 you think that the public messaging matches these hard data. So again, people can sit here and say, "Oh, they're interviewing Dr. Bridal, and you know, Dr. Bridal has been fact-checked, and we we've been told he's an anti-vaxer, even though he's a vaccinologist, even though I continue to publish papers and uh, about vaccines." But this is the thing: I'm just the messenger. So you go if you want to argue this, you tell them go to the New England Journal of Medicine, see if Dr. Bridal's right. There is a table there where they summarize, you know, all the important outcomes of the study. And in that data set, this is very, very important. What is the last? So people forget about how much we've moved the goalposts, right? They'll tell you today. What do they tell you today? Tell us today, Sheldon and Brent. Well, they tell people like you, go get your third booster, right? And start getting your fourth booster now because it's going to save you from death due to COVID-19. That's the most extreme outcome, right? That is not the understanding where the mandate, where, where, with which the mandates were brought in. We were told very definitively it stopped in infection and stopped the spread of the of the the um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which causes the COVID-19. We were told that people forget that, but fine, fine. So you want to you want to pretend now that the entire goal right from the beginning was not to stop infection, not to stop cases of COVID-19, but rather to blunt the severity of the disease. So now we go back to this clinical trial data, which was done in the context of the original Wuhan variant. So remember, this vaccine is targeting spike protein from the original Wuhan variant. So this is the best case scenario for this vaccine. It should be performing at its best because it's in the context of the variant that it was designed to protect against, right? And you know what the data actually show? The data show that before they unblinded the study, Right and vaccinated all those that were in the placebo group. Before they did this, they had, when you look at all-cause mortality, they had uh, one more death in, in the vaccinated group than they did. Because that's at, at the end of the day, that is the most important outcome: all-cause mortality. At the end of the day, really, what that tells you is, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care, you know, what the causes are. At the end of the day, if you're in a group of people, you want to be alive. Right. You want to be alive. So you want to be in the group that has the lowest all cause mortality. Always, always. Right. That's just natural. So they had one more death, higher numerical number of deaths in the vaccinated group than they did in the placebo group. Was that statistically significantly higher? One hundred percent. No. But that's the important thing. More importantly, because the groups were almost equal. In fact, I think it was slightly more people uh, maybe in the placebo group, if I recall. But they're almost identical. So this is the whole thing. Nine versus eight deaths. Is that a statistically, can I say it's a statistically? 
Okay, there we go. So pardon me for the interruption there, uh, folks. It, just a, a little bit of a memory issue, but we're getting back to, to, to Dr. Bridal here, who, who we, uh, was interrupted by this, this little interruption on our computer. Doctor, you're just speaking about the, this, this website here and reference to uh, the definition of, of, of a vaccine and how this was changed. Yeah, sure. So this is very important that people understand what, what, we, what we mean when we use the term vaccine. So go to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control website, and search for their definition of a vaccine. And then I recommend that you copy and paste, or sorry, copy the address line, and then look up in a separate window, the Wayback Machine, and paste into its search uh, area, the the address for the, um, for, the, for the webpage for the CDC. It'll come up with a bunch of calendars with dates. And anytime there's a circle on a date, that's, that means there's a day where they, that's a day where they captured a screenshot of that website. So historical green screenshots. And what I recommend you do is you pull up a, um, a historical screenshot for the definition, CDC's definition of a vaccine from sometime before June, 2021, because that's when they switched the definition. And then you can see with your own eyes, the change in the definition. And it's very interesting, uh, Sheldon, because like you said, their definition included the concept of immunity. And it's interesting, they, they didn't change the, the definition of immunity um immunity means to be protected right it means to be so just so people are clear it means to be protected from a disease right so you don't get the disease nor are you able to as you mentioned sheldon transmit the causative agent of the disease uh, and what, what what they did when they changed the definition they removed the concept of immunity and now it simply needs to be something in the united states this is their new definition of vaccine it just needs to be something that stimulates uh, an immune response that can be beneficial in the context of a disease. So just so you know, I can show you lots of published peer-reviewed scientific literature showing that yogurt has all kinds of immunological benefits. It actually uh, induces, especially innate immune responses that can be beneficial in the context of all kinds of diseases. So according to the new definition in the United States, Yogurt is now a vaccine. And I'm sorry, as a vaccinologist, that is not what I'm going to be teaching my students. And this is the other thing. You mentioned um, word salad, right, is what I would say has become this crazy issue over the last three years. Words have meaning. And, and I don't care about whether there's a precise definition. If you've changed a definition, but you haven't publicly relayed that, far and wide to the public and explain to them scientifically, but in lay language, right? Lay scientific language, what the implications of that are. I'm sorry, you're still not allowing informed consent because people have, so the, what I would say, Sheldon, is you know, if we, if we polled the average Canadian and said, tell me what a vaccine, okay, and let's say, and we did this before uh, COVID-19, right? I, I think that's important because now they've been colored by this idea that a vaccine simply wants disease. If we asked anybody, they would come up with, almost everybody would say exactly what you said. Well, it, it's something I take, and if I take it, then I'm protected from disease and I can't get my friends sick either, right? That is what they thought. So that is when they're doing the, this informed consent process and they're hearing the term vaccine applied to these COVID-19 shots, that's the context in which they're make, doing that decision-making. Now in Canada, when I, when I was serving an expert witness in a court case, it, it was pointed, well, that's not our definition. You know, our, our definition is, is different. So fine. So let's look at the Canadian definition. Again, people go to Health Canada. We, we have the, the Canadian um, Immunization Guide. And if you look at Canada's Immunization Guide, in there, we have, a uh, we have what we call the definition of an ideal vaccine. 
Now, it's interesting. The, the Canadian definition of an ideal vaccine is... Now, actually, it's a little bit right. I, I completely disagree with this, in fact, this first part. But this is what it is. An ideal vaccine in Canada is one in which you give a single dose um, at, at birth, they say, remarkably, and the person is protected for the rest of their life, uh, protected from disease and transmitting the causative agent. Now, that's actually crazy because I can tell you immunologically at birth, we're completely immunologically naive. Plus, we have our mother's antibodies and any good uh, physician, like so, for example, people, if anybody's in medical school, they'll know they will have already learned that if, if a baby has consumed colostrum with their mother's antibodies, they are not going to mount an immune response against any vaccine. You, that's why you actually delay vaccines until well past birth when the mother's antibodies are, are decreasing. Then the baby can respond because when we have high levels of antibodies in our circulation, our immune system does not respond well to vaccines. That's just fact. But so, so with that nuance aside, which I disagree with, therefore, I would say no, uh, it's going to be one. A good vaccine is going to be one and done for somebody with a with a fully mature immune system. OK, but that's the whole point. I mean, the, 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 the take big take home message here is in Canada. A good quality vaccine is one where you get one dose and the person is protected from disease and transmitting for the rest of their lives. So now let's put that in perspective. If that's our Canadian definition of an ideal vaccine, where then do we, uh, on the scale, do we put the COVID-19 shots? Let's think for a moment. Does it does it prevent infection, right? Does, does it stop transmission? Absolutely not. There, there's no benefit at all. Now we see in the data and stopping transmission. Um, does it stop the disease or at least stop the diagnosis of COVID-19? No. And in fact, now those are being disproportionately diagnosed among those who've got the vaccine. It's actually the reverse. Now, this is the big one. This should be blatantly obvious to everybody. Is this vaccine technology a one and done technology? One dose and you're done? Like we're up to six doses and more now in some people. Hello. Um, so what I would say is in the United States, this does not meet the definition of the traditional definition of a vaccine. In Canada, these COVID-19 shots are as far from being an ideal vaccine as you can possibly get and still try and keep it under that umbrella term. And at the end of the day, this is most important probably for the general public, it does not match the inherent understanding that the majority of the public has, which matches the traditional uh, definition in the United States. Um, just to jump in here about the vaccines. So we sort of went through the benefit that they could provide, may provide if, if at all. And I think people have a better understanding of that now, but let's talk about the opposite side, the risks, because we need to balance that between benefits and, and risks. Um, yeah, yeah, so sorry, sorry Brandon, just, 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 I 100% agree. We definitely need to go there. I just want to point, we talked about the benefits, which were small, but I want to remind your listeners in the context of the Wuhan variant. And at that time with the data, there would be some data from the alpha variant. But I want to point out that I am not convinced that there's any benefit in re reducing laboratory confirmed, because that's what the definition was in the clinical trial early on, laboratory confirmed COVID-19. 
And not only do I believe there is no benefit currently in, in preventing uh, laboratory confirmed COVID-19, but the opposite, we have a, a, an ever growing amount of very disconcerting data. In fact, there was uh, data that was just released in a uh, preprint article, so it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but it matches what we're seeing with public health data where there was a perfect dose response relationship in completely the opposite direction that you would predict for a vaccine. In other words, what you predict is if these vaccines, like they've been telling us, right, the more doses, the more up to date you are, the more protected you are. Um, no, in fact, it shows that people right now, the rate of diagnosis with COVID-19 is lowest among those that have got no shots, takes a big jump up if you got one shot, goes up again with two shots, and goes up yet again with three plus shots. They haven't parsed out the three plus. So my concern is if they, when they start getting data for fourth and fifth shots, is it going to keep going up? But that's what we're seeing. So I just wanna put that out there, Brandon. Yes, there were small benefits, small absolute risk reduction benefits in the context of the original variants. Now at best, they have zero benefit whatsoever in terms of preventing laboratory-confirmed COVID-19. And actually, I, I would argue there's lots of data that's now making me comfortable enough to say, to warn people, they're probably making you more susceptible to getting laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 with the more doses that you get. All right? yeah. and, and so we need to keep that in mind as we now talk about risks, because it's risk versus benefit analysis. So yes, there was some statistically significant benefit way back with the Wuhan strain. But when people, when we talk about these risks, people have to put it into the current understanding that not only is that benefit gone, it's likely actually negative. So I mean, so if you think about that for a moment, if you conduct a risk benefit analysis, think about this for a moment. You can do away with the risk analysis for these shots if there's no benefit, right? Like that's just inherently obvious. You, you're never going to apply because there is no medical vision. I mean, I don't care. Water is not without zero risk, right? You can actually consume a, a toxic amount of water, right? So when you put that in perspective, you are never going to administer any medical intervention, especially a, no a novel medical intervention, if there is zero risk. And if it's negative, if it's actually negative effectiveness, it becomes a moot point whether there's even risk. So even without the risks, right? This is my whole point. I think we are causing more harm than good right now. But absolutely, Brandon, because then it becomes more egregious when we start talking about risk. Yeah, I, I think what you're referencing there was that Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic. And it was yes. almost surprising that like five doses was at the top of um, infection per capita uh, or something, a number like that. Yes. And then it was four doses, three doses, and then zero was at the bottom. Exactly. Which is literally the opposite of what people had in their mind because they treated people who had zero doses as like they had leprosy and were killing yes. all these grandmas, but it's, it's literally the complete inverse of that. So that's, yes. Oh, and sorry, I also something. forgot, um, Sheldon, you had brought up natural immunity. After we talk about risks, we probably should come back to that briefly because that's very, very important. Yeah. So what, what do we know about risks? I know there was this one paper, um, by framing it all in vaccines in 2022 and they essentially took uh, Pfizer's clinical trial data and put that into the context of um, how likely were you to get a serious adverse um, event so like hospitalization or die after the vaccine um, what, what what do we know of the real risks now from uh, these COVID-19 injections or whatever you want to call them okay so this is the really sad thing 
the practice of good quality science when it comes to COVID-19 seemed to go be thrown right out the window, right at the beginning when we declared uh, a COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic. So what we are absolutely starved of high quality, objective, you know, very transparent safety data when it comes to these vaccines. Like I said, the data that I trust the most of everything that we have is Pfizer's own data. And as you pointed out, remember, we already talked about this, about, about Pfizer's own, own data, because we were talking about whether there was any benefit in the context of reducing hospitalizations and deaths. And the fact that Maddie Degare, who's been brutally injured by the vaccine, and others were excluded. So when I was telling you about, like, so they, they have the, 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 you know, adverse events listed there. People like the, her are not in that list, not account for, but people would want to, like, that's obviously an important outcome when you're talking about risk. This, so this is the fascinating thing, right? The other thing when we talk about risk, I want to just point out to you, people keep thinking there's this trick that's also used, like I said, that was used by Pfizer themselves. If people didn't get past that second dose, they were, they were written off. And so we don't have safety data on them. But if you suffered serious harm from one dose, I don't care whether or not you've mounted a robust immune response at that point or not. I don't care whether you're, you're, you're defined as having been fully vaccinated. That harm, if that harm was from that first dose, that's a harm caused by the vaccine. When it comes to risk, there is no, we should wait and evaluate risk only in the fully vaccinated. No, 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 no. Harm after first doses counts. I mean, that's just uh, obvious. So this is important because we, then we understand that Pfizer's own data does have a bias. But at least that there was active monitoring being done, right? And I've, I've already explained, the passive monitoring that we've been relying on is, is it underestimates the, the risk to a substantial degree. So even with Pfizer's, now that we know biased data, we don't know exactly how biased, it clearly shows there were no benefits. Like when it, when it came to the, the harms being caused, it could not reduce it, and severe adverse events were much more common in the group that had got the vaccines. Pfizer's own data shows that. Now, this is very interesting. What are one of the things we know definitively now? This is what I got myself, apparently, in huge trouble about back in May of 2021. I I, I just spoke this the truth when I was asked, could mRNA vaccines potentially be linked to cases of myocarditis being observed in young males? I said it was. And then I start. I had many potential mechanistic concerns, and I started sharing that, right? But, and then, oh boy, I got attacked like you wouldn't believe, like you know. But this is the thing. Now myocarditis is on the. It's on the label. It's accepted to be a, a vaccine side effect. But think about how long that I say quotes debate because it was largely a one-sided. There was all the censorship of those who had much concern. So, you think of how long, how much time, how much effort, how much money, how much research dollars went into getting the world, getting the public health officials and government officials who've been pushing this man, the, the, this narrative, how long did it take to get them to accept that there was uh, a potential link between the vaccines and myocarditis, right? Think about that for a moment. Now, get this. Remember I told you about the deaths in, in the, in the six-month update of Pfizer's clinical trial? One of the things they didn't tell you is uh, a clear difference between the two groups was of the deaths in those that did not get the shot, four could be attributed to cardiovascular events. Guess how many in the vaccinated group? Nine. Now, it's not large numbers, and this, but this is the issue, is often when there aren't, there aren't large numbers, scientists are prone to say, oh, well, just, you know, this is an outlier data set. We don't have huge numbers, so we're just going to ignore it. That, when you look at it, that was an early safety signal 
right there. And this is the thing. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet because this has happened yesterday. A new Pfizer document has been obtained. Uh, and this is what's disconcerting because every as we get these documents, we see more and more stuff was hidden from us that we were not being shown information. And especially for guys your age, uh, you, you, you should see this document because it's particularly shocking. It shows its, its communications uh, within Pfizer clearly showing that they have readily accepted that, that, that there's a high jump in the risk of myocarditis to your age group, right? They, so again, they knew this. They knew this long ago. This is, so this is stuff they knew long ago. And like I said, even that clinical trial data showed evidence of this. And what's interesting, a lot of people don't realize, guess what? When they did the children's trial, get this, when they did the children's trial, they have right in there, because even in Canada, if you go and look back, what were we told in Canada? We were told that guys your age, uh, we now recommend because we care so much about you, right? Don't take the Moderna vaccine because it seems to cause myocarditis in one out of 5,000 people that receive it um, who are young males, right? And the young male demographic. But Pfizer, it's only one in 28,000, right? So it's much safer. So you guys take the Pfizer. Well, you know what? Did you, did you realize this came out in the Pfizer documents as well, one of the data dumps. When they conducted the trials to try and get emergency use authorization for these shots in children, one of the documents that was released was a consent form that the parents had to sign to enroll their children in this clinical trial. And you know what the disclosure was on that to them that they were signing off on? That, that Pfizer themselves, and again, I would argue this is an underestimate, but nevertheless, this is interesting because Pfizer themselves had written right on that disclosure form. The parents had to sign off that they understood that there was, and this was not young males only. Okay, keep this. This was not young males, which is the highest risk demographic. This is general. This is the generally speaking, right, among people who have received the dose. The risk of myocarditis, parent, just so you know, before you sign off on this form, is one in ten thousand. Now keep that in mind. One in ten thousand, and we were told in Canada it's one in twenty-eight thousand guys. So go and do this. Now they stopped the Moderna recommendation at one in five thousand. And the other thing I like to put into perspective: we shut down the entire AstraZeneca program because it was found to cause blood clots. Again, this would be a gross underestimate, but nevertheless, we go with the definition we're working with. Canada defined the AstraZeneca vaccine to be too dangerous for Canadian adults. We weren't considering children then, when it was causing blood clots in one out of 55,000 people, right? So put that into context. You guys are being told, yeah, Moderna might be a little unsafe when it comes to the to the heart stuff. We do care about you guys. So go with the Pfizer. It's 128,000. No, Pfizer themselves was putting on, at that time when Canada said that, Pfizer was putting on their consent forms for the children's trial, one in 10,000, and not specifying that that's young males, right? And they forgot to tell you, to put into perspective, young males, as you're trying to make your decision, remember that we shut down the AstraZeneca program at a one in 55,000 incidence of a serious outcome. Right. People have to put these things into context, right? The overall messaging and what's happened over that time. Well, the, the virus has got less dangerous. Right. So remember, we shut down the program for an incidence of 155,000. That was when we were dealing. There was the Delta variant, which was admittedly the most dangerous of them all. Right. So now this time later, they're telling you, OK, with the Pfizer vaccine, the virus is less dangerous. You're at much less risk. Right. And we're, we're, we're clearly Pfizer. You know, from the Pfizer documents, we know that we're telling you that the 128,000 risk is is dramatically underestimating it, right? Because what they do, what they, where, where did they get that from? They got that from the Canadian monitoring system, right? Um, so who are you going to trust, them? Or like, so if Pfizer themselves is saying one in 10,000, and you know there's probably going to be some level of bias there, 
then you know the 128,000 is nowhere near accurate, okay? That, that's just fact, people. And, and, and so, Brad, this is the problem. And there are safety signals popping up for all kinds of, of other things. And what bugs me is what people have to remember, these safety signals are supposed to be detected during the clinical trial, right? And like you said, we removed any chance of detecting these safety signals in the clinical trials because it was shut down after four months. Like, the, you know, the, the, the placebo group was removed, as you pointed out. So we have no safety data, no proper safety data from active monitoring beyond two months. And you think about we have discovered all of these safety signals after the rollout. People didn't like the idea of, well, we're, we're the public are serving as guinea pigs. I'm sorry you were, because guess what? All of the discoveries of the harms of these vaccines were discovered, you, the global population. Right? Think about it. The very first day that they were rolled out, anaphylaxis was a problem, right? Anaphylaxis was discovered. Uh, you got the reports. Anytime, almost any time a country rolled it out, immediately, the very first day, there was evidence of anaphylaxis, right? And immediately they had to figure that out. That wasn't because so that tells you that we did not spend the proper time evaluating safety in the trials, right? The myocarditis came out after the fact. I would argue, like I said, now we go back to clinical trial data, there were safety signals if if regulators were properly looking for these things, right? Um, but nevertheless. We identified it. We relied on other countries to identify that problem again. Canada didn't. We're, we're, our system is never going to be a leader in identifying these safety signals, right? Uh, there were the blood clots. There's, there's Guillain-Barre syndrome has been identified. Um, New Zealand just recently added a new safety signal to their uh, list um, about one month ago, maybe two months ago, right? New safety signals keep being added. But you know what's interesting? This is the problem. <laughs> what was supposed to happen? Because we the public kept being told... Um, yeah, you know, we're, we're very comfortable with the safety data we've seen in the, in the clinical trials to date. And rest assured, people, we're going to be actively monitoring this. You, know, you see what I mean? Active monitoring. No. What they did not disclose. So what they were implying there is we're literally going to be active in monitoring. Like we're actually going to be moving our bodies. We're going to be shuffling our feet. And we're going to be looking at databases and this, that, and other thing. But it's not active monitoring by the proper definition of active monitoring in the context of a trial where you actually go and test people. You look for problems. You look for evidence of problems after you received the shot. So the public was misled with that kind of wording. Again, this word salad, right? And what they really meant to say is, yeah, we have very, very super limited active monitoring data. And what we didn't disclose to you is that when these, doc you know, that we now see that they had the documents that they were looking at, um, there were serious questions of harm here. Right. And no and no benefit in terms of the, the, the most severe outcomes of this disease. But what we're going to do, people, is we're going to rely on our passive monitoring system. So let's look at our passive monitoring system in Canada. <laughs> if you don't know how this works, a person like has to report after they've received the vaccine. This is how it's supposed to work. Uh, and especially in the context of these vaccines in particular, <laughs> because um, they were rolled out um, as because they're, they're experimental. A person post-vaccination should have reported any unusual medical event, not one that they think might logically be related to the vaccine. Any unusual medical event post-vaccination should be reported to the physician. Then the physician is not supposed to make a determination of whether they think that that medical condition might or might not be related to the vaccine. Let's face it. When you're dealing with a completely novel medical product, how can you possibly know whether it could or could not be related? Right? You don't say, well... This isn't something they've ever seen with any vaccine before, so therefore it can't possibly be related. This is not like any vaccine we've had before. So they're not supposed to make that determination, but I will guarantee you that they have been. 
there are many physicians who have been and say this can't possibly relate to the vaccine. I'm not going to do it. There's many people who, for, to which it was not disclosed that they were supposed to be reporting any medical event that 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 uh, they experienced. Then, <laughs> so if it gets to the physician, and if the physician agrees to send it on, it goes to the local medical officer of health. The local medical officer of health, remarkably, is supposed to make a determination of whether they think it's related to the vaccine or not. And only if they think it is, do they pass it on to the Public Health Agency of Canada, where we could actually, therefore, and they can be screened again, and provided that the Public Health Agency of Canada then agrees and puts it in the database, then we get that as a potential adverse event, right? And <laughs> this system has broken down badly. From medical officers of health, Think about it. They're all individuals, different jurisdictions. Now, <laughs> they all may be applying different criteria because they're asking them subjectively to decide whether they think it's linked or not. And again, I tell you, how are they going to know whether something's linked when it's new? Now, think about this. So somebody could have something serious happen. Somebody could have a blood clot happen or something. Like that. And they, in their mind, they're like, okay, but I've never seen this with any vaccine before. So I don't think it's linked. And of all the vaccine doses we've given, there's just this one case. So this is clearly an outlier. Well, guess what? If every single medical officer of health reported the one blood clot, right, the first time that it came past them, we would see, we would have saw it very early on, a pattern starting to emerge, right? Rather than one medical officer saying, well, this is a one out of, you know, this is a one-off event. All of a sudden, every medical officer of health across Canada has this one-off event and now you pool it, guess what? It's not a one-off event anymore, is it? So our system is fundamentally flawed for detecting these harms. And so what I can say is based on the, these kind of concepts, we have dramatically underestimated the real harms of these vaccines, but to an unknown degree. Again, we can't accurately know how much we've underestimated. But, but that's the thing. And the other thing that you need to be aware of, <coughs> excuse me, is... People have been told there's a certain number of adverse events. So if you go to Health Canada, I think it's about 16, maybe it's 19, it's in the teens there, of adverse events that they consider to be adverse events of special interest. You know what that means? Those are the ones that people are supposed to be keeping an eye out for. So if a physician sees any evidence of those occurring in their patient, those definitely are supposed to be reported. And guess what? A medical officer of health that gets those reports coming onto their desk is definitely going to pass them on to the Public Health Agency of Canada, okay? But guess what? What we found out when, in the context of the clinical trial, what were those physicians running the clinical trial? How many special adverse events of special interest were they to monitor? If they saw any of those, that's what it is. An adverse event of special interest doesn't mean it's a known adverse event. It means, mechanistically, there's reason to believe it could be associated with the vaccine. It could be caused with the vaccine. So you identify it. You know how many there were? 1,290 adverse events of special interest that the clinicians running the clinical trials were supposed to be actively looking for. So now you ask yourself, we cut the safety monitoring of those trials at a median of two months why are we asking our physicians to look for, uh, again, what, about 16 to 19 special, you know, adverse events of special interest? All right. So that's why we have underestimated the true extent of the harms of these shots. Wow. Wow. It was so insightful. Yeah, we should really be asking, I guess, in that sense, doctor, our physicians, if they can, they're going to be monitoring all of them, all of these adverse well, events. Uh, good point. Yeah. I, I ask if, how many physicians have, you know, they're, they're well trained, but I would be interested in knowing, well, 
So this is the interesting thing, Sheldon. Remember, it's not just physicians who have been giving these shots. It's been physicians. It's been nurses. It's been nurse practitioners. Yeah. And guess what? At my institution, people might be surprised, or sorry, in my jurisdiction, we had veterinarians and undergraduate students administering the shots remarkably. Um, so the question is, so we have to keep that in mind. So if you are getting a shot administered by a an undergraduate student who is in a doctor of veterinary medicine program uh or any of the others that are were giving the shots yeah what what i would like to know to to have confidence is can they define all 1290 special or adverse events of special interest because if you don't know what they are how are you possibly going to look them but that's not good enough not only do you have to know what they are you have to know how to detect them yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, for example, if there's a heart problem, you, you're not just going to look at somebody's chest and say, well, I don't see a heart problem, you know, so it's fine. No. Guess what? You, you have to know you got to put on a stethoscope to be able to detect that, you know, and listen. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So there, yeah. there's certain methodologies that have to be used and applied actively to look for these things. So ask yourself that right as the public. It's, it's remarkable when you think what the proper uh, running of this vaccine rollout should have looked like if we were doing it scientifically and with true safety in mind. Yeah, so important, so important. Uh, guys, just before we wrap up here, and I'm sorry, I have to go, because uh, the room is gonna be booked out sooner, so I apologize about that, but um, just wanted to ask, this is sounds very, very uh, a basic question, basic perspective, but a lot of, I think what you're touching on is a bit of a, a, a larger issue here. Um, at least from the, from the general perspective. And, and that's it. Uh, so many of their students, you talked a bit about censorship. Many people believe that there was just a general consensus, doctors agreeing that the vaccines are right. Of course, that comes from censoring those who, who disagree with them. But so many you know, young people are coming in to, to think of science as, as a, a certain area of, of, of study in which uh, only those who, who are in administrative or bureaucratic positions make, make the decisions. I think we had Jan Arden down in, in New Zealand say, if it's not coming from us, this information, it's not correct. You know, Anthony Fauci saying, follow the science. Can I just ask really quickly, very simply, what is is the role that, that discourse and, and, and debate plays in science, just so that our viewers know? It's everything. Okay. If we really, so the argument behind the censorship, this, this, this crazy misleading argument has been, when there is a serious public health emergency and people's lives are on the line, right, you have to kind of squash those who are providing misinformation and go with, yeah, what the general consensus is. But this is the thing, a general consensus was never um, established. There has to be open discourse. And guess what? Even if there's an emergency uh, happening and you have to make some discussion or, or some harsh decisions early on, you don't, you then adjust your course based on those discussions. You don't stop the discussions. Fine, you have to make decisions based on what the early discussions have, where the where the weight of the evidence seems to lie at that point, but you do not stifle the discussions at all. You, in fact, encourage them to continue to see whether what you put in place is correct or not, and you'd be willing to change course. Had we allowed that to happen, we would have, so I, I view it this way, right? We put ourselves, so I have no, I had no problem with that three weeks to flatten the curve, but after that, we put ourselves into, and we're still in this three-year nosedive, right? We have been flattening out, right? We 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 did, we have thankfully got rid of masking mandates most places and the vaccine mandates, right? So we have been flattening out, but we could have pulled out of this a long, long time ago before we destroyed our economy, before we destroyed people's lives, 
uh, had we had that discourse. That is proper science. That's just how it is. You don't hate people and label people with names who think are, are differently than you. My goodness, if we apply this to gender issues or whatever uh, other social sociocultural issues you want to apply right now, we would never do this. We would never just say to any group, you do not have a voice at the table here, would we? Um, we're all about EDI, right? Um, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And that means everybody being able to come to the table, everybody's opinion being able to be represented. If you remove that from public health, what I would tell you, what the, what the, if we do a proper dissection of the last three years, which I would argue is the most mismanaged crisis of our, of our time, we will see that suppressing open discourse, public discourse, caused far more harm than good. Oh, and Sheldon, I just want to very briefly, because again, I didn't answer it properly. You've met, brought up natural immunity. Very quickly, as an immunologist, I can assure you our immune systems continue to function in the year 2023. And they did in 2022, and they did in 2021. And the data, we have a mass. So like I say, you never cite just one paper, one hand-selected paper from the lot. When you're making when you're making decisions, you always have to look at the bulk of the literature and then see where the weight of the overall literature weighs. We have a mountain of literature now showing that naturally acquired immunity, SARS-CoV-2, is unquestionably superior in every way, shape, and form to that induced by to the immune responses induced by these shots. And that should have been taken into account. We also now know that those, especially young males, guess guess where you're more most at risk, guys your age, from the from the myocarditis, the second dose. Uh, and you know why? Almost certainly, we don't know definitively, but almost certainly, it's because the first dose gets you to generate antibodies against the spike protein. And guess what? The second dose now distributes the spike protein throughout your body, including getting cells lining your blood vessels and in your heart, expressing the spike protein on the surface, that then get attacked by those antibodies from the first dose. So guess what? The same thing applies to natural infection. If you are naturally infected and you you now have superior protection than what the vac that these shots could ever confer. It also means you have antibodies that spike protein. And what do these shots do? The natural infection does not. The natural infection comes in through your respiratory system, but the shot distributes the spike protein throughout your body, including your heart and the blood vessels. So if you had a natural infection, guess what? The data also shows very clearly that the first dose. So so people who just got the shots, the second dose was most dangerous to young males. But for young males, if you previously had an infection and now you have the natural immunity, that first dose is as dangerous as the second dose to those who did not have natural immunity. Okay, so you need to understand this. Natural immunity should have been taken into account. And actually, had we recognized natural immunity and had we harnessed natural immunity, we would have been able to get out of this nosedive much sooner as well. And you may not know this at the very beginning of the declared pandemic. You remember where there were all these special task forces put together? Uh, to look after certain aspects, right? Um, we had a task force right from the very get-go set up to look at antibody testing. What that is, is looking for evidence of natural immunity. Because if you've been naturally infected, you will have generated antibodies. You simply take a blood sample. And if I find in you antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, guess what? That's proof that you had been infected. And it's proof that you have mounted an immune response and you have at least some level of protection. That was disbanded. And we have lost... That is a super rich data source that we could have had, and we lost it all. For some reason, we declared natural immunity was not a real thing in the context of SARS-CoV-2 very early on, and that caused many of you as students to be kicked out of your programs uh, and to be brutalized.
Yeah, yeah. It's so important to know, and I, I really thank you for, for coming back to that, Professor. Uh, it is it's really important point to, to make sure we touched on prior to ending. Um, Brandon, any any last points from you? Yeah, I just wanted to bring up uh, that one point you said, looking at the totality of evidence, and that reminds me of masking. At my university, we still have to wear masks and march around with masks on our faces. Um, but the recent Cochrane review looked at like 11 randomized controlled trials and showed absolutely no benefit to wearing a mask and preventing infection or severe disease. Um, but this university clearly relies on something else to make their decisions. Um, but just looking in, in reverse of our whole conversation today, um, essentially the inverse of what we are told is actually reality. Initially, this is over 1%, everyone's going to die. Um, Ionitis shows that it's on par with uh, bad flu season at 0.1%. Um, we then decide to bring in a, a vaccine program for everyone, no exceptions. We find out that 95% is just based on PCR testing. Uh, no, no difference in all-cause mortality. In fact, more people who took the vaccine died. Um, now we see even that relative risk doesn't seem to hold up. Cleveland Clinic shows more doses you get more likely to be infected. We now see uh, talk of adverse events, um, as you pointed out. Um, many of this not coming from Canada, actually, young men. Uh, I think that myocarditis paper coming out of Thailand was quite important uh, to inform us. Um, so, so all of this stuff is, is coming out, and it's sort of contrary um, to what we are told. Um, maybe just touch on that. Um, how, how do we go forward? Um, I know a lot of people were essentially victims of this, uh, students having to take vaccines, they just wanted to go to class, just wanted to wear a mask, um, and the broader public victims as well to this, this information that is turning out to be the actual inverse of the truth. So maybe, maybe touch on that and, and how do we go forward and, um, and move beyond this? Sure. In terms of how we go forward, yeah, that's a, that's a big problem. Uh... And, and, and there's a lot of stuff there, but I'll quickly un unpack some of some of that. So first of all, the masking. You're right. The, the Cochrane report. Uh, it, it's it's interesting. So it, I, it's interesting. I served uh, served as an expert witness recently for a court case, uh, and before that Cochrane report, it's interesting. Before that was published, I had to, I put together. Um, I did a very extensive. I actually took it very seriously. I spent. Um, two and a half months intensively searching, like looking at the masking literature. Um, what's interesting, I came personally up, it's interesting with the same studies and more, because I looked a little more historically, looked at some other things, actually it brought up even more studies than what they looked at in the Cochrane report. I came up with the exact same conclusion that they did, including the fact that the vast majority of masking studies are very poor quality. It's very hard to trust the 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 evidence that they that they put out there, no matter what the conclusion is. Uh, and yeah, so so the point being, the Cochrane report is absolutely accurate in the sense that there's a lot of very poor quality data, poorly designed experiments out there. And and so the point, we do not have evidence to suggest that they are effective. And this is the whole thing. I'm fine, Brandon. If people want to say, well, maybe it's effective, right? We haven't. Nobody can prove it's not. Um, fine but that's only justification therefore at most for voluntary masking if you so wish if you if you want to go if you want to say there's no evidence but maybe there maybe you know it is of help fine go ahead and put on your mask voluntarily but to me you never ever 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 mandate such um, a life altering and life harming 
thing as making the whole world mask and children and school mask and causing all the harm that was done by the masking when you have no definitive support that it is clearly helping. That is just common sense. You never, ever, ever do that. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The whole idea of masking is completely flawed. Now, it's la laughably, I've seen people who are still desperately trying to push this narrative. One of the things that they try and say about the Cochrane, uh, uh, recent Cochrane review is, oh, but it heavily focuses on the flu, not SARS-CoV-2. Well, guess what? They kept up the, uh, uh, the, the they included the studies on SARS-CoV-2, and those alone showed that there was no um, evidence to support the masking, right? So, and the whole point that they're for the people that are saying, well, well focus, remember people focus mainly on the flu. How applicable is that to SARS-CoV-2? Well, guess what? When the mask mandates came in, guess what data it was based on? It was based on the masking data from the flu, right? Um, we did not have those two clinical trials, randomized clinical trials that had been done later on with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 which do not provide solid evidence for a masking mandate, by the way. So, the, you know, these narrative pushers are, they keep trying, I don't know why they're trying so hard to, uh, to try and get people to ignore the obvious, but it's becoming harder and harder because the avalanche of data suggests just that we, what you did, Brandon, almost everything we did uh, was counterintuitive and actually caused more harm than good. And the thing that bugs me is, Honestly, like I, I look at you and Sheldon and how logical you are. How, 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 it's clear to me that you have clearly looked at the evidence and you're clearly looking at it with, you know, uh, giving it a lot of critical thought. And I would say, you know, we need. So you ask me, what is the way forward? I'll tell you what the way forward is. I'm encouraging people like you, how we've shown the ability to, to keep the critical thinking, ask the tough questions, despite the constant attacks against you, the harassment, the name calling, the labeling. We need people like you to replace the people that caused all this harm, honestly, because people have to remember the infrastructure still remains. The same people that caused more harm than good over the three years are the same people that are still in these decision making positions. We have to replace them. And the other. Uh, so that'd be number one. Uh, we need to replace them with individuals like yourself and your colleagues, too. Uh, and there's many things that need to happen in the future, but I'll just stick with two for the sake of time. Second. Um, we have a regulatory agency that's supposed to have looked at all these things, right? And be providing proper advice. That needs to be gutted, and the whole system needs to be gutted. Health Canada, the most of their funding, just like this, the um, United States Food and Drug Administration and others around the world, the vast majority of their funding comes from the very pharma companies mm -hmm. whose applications they're reviewing. Now, you people know if you're if you are in work. And, and and it's being run under a business model. Literally, if you look at, at what it is, it's being run under a business model. Now, people will tell you if you're so if you are running a business model, business models are based on money and you never bite the hand that feeds you. Right. Yet a lot of people have in their mind that Health Canada is somehow. Completely funded through taxpayers. Right. It's a government agency. It must be completely funded by taxpayers. It's paid by taxpayers and it's for the taxpayers. You know what? That's what we have to actually get back to. But you know what's going to happen? This is the thing. They're, having something like that happen will be next to impossible. You know why? If we act, because this is the sad thing. It's it goes back to what you were talking about with Pfizer. There's a, it used to, historically you can find papers where they where they actually in scientific journals have referred to Pfizer as the most criminal uh, pharma organization in the world. Right? They have been the most fined organization in uh, pharma company in history. And this is the thing. If we actually changed our regulatory uh, practices to best serve the public, I can 100% guarantee you that we would be rejecting a lot 
more applications that are coming from these companies. And then guess what? Then these companies aren't going to want to come and do business in Canada. And then there's going to be that issue, you know, so then we have to address, well, we do need genuine, good quality solutions to health issues, right? Um, so that's, you know, so, so this is what has to happen is we have to figure out these very difficult scenarios. You know, we can't just outright overhaul a system because uh, it might introduce new problems. But the whole thing is, if Pfizer then doesn't want to come here because too many of their products are deemed to be of too poor a quality to Canadians, do we want their products at all to begin with? Right. Then maybe that then maybe what we have to do in addition to that is develop more of our own R&D. Right. When it comes to drugs and get more of our internal solutions, quality solutions being generated that are going to pass our rigorous requirements to make sure that we are looking after the best interests. So you can see it's very complicated. And this has to happen. This has to happen with our local public health units and who's leading them. It has to help, help happen with the Public Health Agency Canada, Health Canada, government officials. I mean, there's all kinds of organizations where, where the leadership has to either be gutted or policies and rules and or laws have to be implemented to keep them on a much shorter leash than what they were on the past three years. And you two and your colleagues are the ones to do this. You, the future Canada lies in your hands. Right on. Well, that's, um, yeah, certainly responsibility we'll, we'll have to uh, uphold in that case then. I, I, me and Brandon were just discussing our futures the past few days, so I guess that kind of determines it in, in some sense. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, Doctor, we've taken up so much of your time, so thoroughly your, your analysis of this issue. We can't thank you enough. Brandon, Any was there anything left from you there uh, I should ask first? No, just thanks for the kind words. Um, thanks for sharing all this information with us. We definitely appreciate it. Keep going. Stay strong. Um, I know a lot of people support you in Canada and worldwide, so we definitely appreciate you. Yeah, and, and one, one last thing as we as we part, because I know you, so you're both at, at university. <laughs> And I and I know the uh, you know labels um, that that you that you and all your fellow students have have uh, received over the past few years and and the criticisms. Um, this is the thing, uh, and and one of the, I know that one of the things that happens is like so. What's clear to me is you two understand uh, the COVID nineteen science far 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 better than the average person who has been involved with policy making. Like, I mean, specifically uh, making policies around COVID-19, right? Yet, you'll, I know that you'll, off, you, you know, you'll be written off, for example, by faculty members who, who would disagree with your viewpoint because, you know, you don't have a PhD or, you know, you're not a physician, whatever. Um, what, one of the things that I can offer is, uh, and I'm always happy to do, right? If you have people who really think that the narrative is something really worth pushing still at this point in time, right? And anybody tries to write you off as students, right? Um, feel free. I, I offer my services, feel free. I would love it if you could organize a debate or we call it a scientific discussion, maybe even better because a lot of people might view a debate. Some people might not want to have, some people can view that as overly confrontational. So th this this is something that I would propose. Uh, so there's no confrontation. I, I would pro I would adhere, you know, and, and I'd say you, you had developed policies to make sure that any discussions like that would be completely professional, right? And, and the parties all adhere to that and promise to adhere to that. Uh, and I would certainly promise to adhere to that. Um, this is the thing. Maybe rather than having sort of a, a, a debate head to head, what would be even better is a forum where students can ask questions. And people who, legitimate experts, who, who, and whose, whose opinions may not completely overlap, let's put it that way, right, um, are welcome to have turns answering those students' questions. 
And then, you know, and they're not even engaging with one another, right? They're, they're engaging with the students, an opportunity to educate the students. And then the students will have heard, you know, answers from uh, different experts. And guess what? That is how you make an informed decision, right? You, you can then hear from the two, decide which one does seem to have the more, most expertise in this particular area, um, which one seems to be able to cite the more, most, most science, the most reliable science, which one aligns with uh, the science that I've gone and looked at. Um, you know, that might be a more, more comfortable setting, but honestly, those kind of things need to happen, and 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 it allows you with your with your with all of the students who would think that you guys went off the rails over the past three years, right? It, it might it might open their mind, like I said. And the students in a university—that's the other thing. If you try and do such a thing, and it doesn't happen, and you can't find anybody who's labeling you as, as having being quacks for the past three years, for example, they're not willing to then back that up by addressing your questions alongside other experts that needs to be highlighting universities that needs to be highlighting universities the university it shouldn't be the only place but of all places it should be the place where that is most readily accepted and never discouraged yeah yeah so well put and so and so true yeah it's a uh, discussion in an open forum is, is so important particularly when these policies and these issues pertain to us as as individual citizens and, and many you know students had a particularly difficult time so yes so well said we're going to try to actively set that up that's a really wonderful idea uh, prof uh professor so um that'll be a, a goal of ours and, and and again thank you so much for for joining us you're welcome thanks for having me guys thank you